Our Father, we thank you that you are uh, the God who strengthens and sustains. And so we ask, Father, that you do that for us even now this evening. Uh, that as we hear you speak to us, that you would uh, strengthen us, that you would sustain us, that you'd help us to, to hear what you have to say, and that you'd send us from this place uh, knowing that your power is at work within us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like we said, this is the, the second part of uh, our little two-week series looking at this uh, incredibly rich, incredibly uh, wonderful chapter. Uh, two weeks doesn't really do it justice, but that's what we've got. Um, and if you were here last week, uh, you'll know that we, we spent the, looked in the first half thinking particularly about uh, this idea of what it means to know God's comfort. Uh, we thought, didn't we, about how uh, life in this world is... It's so often chaotic, it's so often confusing, we're not really sure what, where we're going, what we're doing, where to look. And so we, what we do is we, we, we tend to look for comfort in all sorts of places, all sorts of people, all sorts of things. But Isaiah's point in the first half of this chapter was that for, for God's people back then and for his people today, True comfort is found when we remember, when we behold God, when we see who he really is. It's when we see and behold the true and living God, the God that we're going to read about this evening, that we can know and experience his comfort. And we saw that's true even in the darkest and most difficult of times. That was last week, that was the first half of the chapter, but, but as we're going to see this evening, it, it seems that Israel need a bit more convincing. Uh, despite all that, that God has done for them in the past, and despite all that he's promised to do for them in the future, they still have doubts. Uh, you can see them in verse 27 of our passage, just look there. Verse 27 says, why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Despite everything that, that they've seen, everything that they've heard, the people of Israel still have questions. They're still not sure that God really cares for them. They're still not convinced that, that he's really got a handle on their situation. And we can be just like them, can't we? Despite God's goodness and his grace to us in the past, despite all of his promises about the future, right now, in the trials and tribulations of today, we can wonder, can't we, whether God has really got it. Whether, whether he really has a grip on us. Whether he's really up to the job. Whether he really cares about our situation. Oh, yeah, of course, we, we, we know the gospel. Yeah, we understand the, the big picture of God's salvation plan. We, we believe it's true. We sing about it. We pray about it. But right here in the mess and muck of our day-to-day -day lives, we wonder. We wonder whether God is really there for us. And so in the second half of this chapter, Isaiah wants to reassure us. He wants to, to convince us beyond doubt that, that God really can be trusted. That he really does care about you and about me. 
And he does that by answering these two big questions, two questions that Israel and that we often ask when times are really tough. First, is God powerful enough? Can he really do what he says he'll do? And then second, does God care enough? Is he really bothered by my life? Or has he got bigger, more important things on his mind? So first, is God powerful enough? If you've, um, if you've ever read any of Isaiah before, you'll know that, that it's a book of contrasts. Uh, there's light and dark, there's judgment and mercy, there's despair and hope. Uh, like a, a good GCSE question, Isaiah loves to compare and contrast. And that's what he's doing here in chapter 40. You might have spotted it in the reading, verse 18. With whom then will you compare God? Or verse 25, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Isaiah makes loads of comparisons. And the reason he does that, the the point of it all is to show how incomparable God really is. So look at the start of our passage at verse 12. It says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Isaiah begins this, this list of comparisons by getting us to look at our hands. Look at your hands, he says, and he says, think about the sort of things you can hold in them. Do it now. What do you, what do you think is the biggest thing you can hold in one hand? Have it in your head and then compare it to the size of the universe. Compare it with, with all the galaxies and stars and solar systems that you can't even hold in your head let alone your hand. Because Isaiah says that, that is what God measures. That is what he has marked off with the breadth of his hand, the universe. Or, or think about it this way. Uh, lots of us will be heading to the coast at some point over the summer. Uh, when you get there, uh, try this little experiment. Maybe do it with your kids if, you, if you're taking kids on holiday. Go to the beach, uh, step into the water and see how much water you can scoop up in one hand. See how much you can hold in the hollow of your hand. Do that uh, and see if, you can, see if you can make the sea level drop a little bit. Just, just a tiny bit. Do that and then, and then compare yourself to the God of Isaiah 40. Compare yourself to the one who holds the oceans, the waters, in his hand. The one who is able to scoop up the Pacific in his palm. Uh, Here's another one. Forget about um, beaches and think about baking for a minute. Uh, Our our kids really do love baking. Uh, They they particularly enjoy um, licking the spoon, obviously. But also, they enjoy the the weighing out, the, the measuring out of the ingredients, But again, next time you're baking, remember what Isaiah says here in verse 12. Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scale and the hills in the balance? We might weigh out ingredients for cupcakes, but the Lord weighs out ingredients for mountains. You might be impressed by some masterpiece in the bake-off tent, but the Lord walks in and presents the Himalayas. You know, Isaiah, can you see the point he's making? Can you see what he wants us to to get our heads around? He says, look, if you're you're not persuaded by God's power, if you're you're not sure he's up to the job, 
just think for a second how much bigger he is than you. He is bigger and more powerful than anything that your mind can comprehend. Because, as verse 22 says later on in the passage, he stands outside of creation. He's not part of it, but enthroned above it. And so Isaiah says we are, we're like grasshoppers compared to his greatness. And not only is his greatness beyond compare, so is his wisdom. Verse 13, who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? We, we all need advice from time to time, don't we? Whoever we are, however intelligent or experienced we think we are, we all need the help of others to get through life. Despite this, this deep desire that we have to be independent and to be self-sufficient, we, we do know, don't we, I hope we do know, that we can never really make it on our own. We need others. We rely on others. Whether that's for education or upbringing or advice or guidance or support, we are dependent beings. It's part of what it means to be human. But that is not the case for God. He alone is independent. He is self-sufficient. And so Isaiah says there is, there's nothing that you can tell him that he doesn't already know. There's no situation that he needs briefing on. No plan or theory that he re requires some sort of explanation of. And I don't know about you, but, but that, that to me, on one level, it, it sounds so obvious. But it's something that we forget so often. For me, that can be seen in the way that I pray. We thought a bit about prayer this morning. So often my prayer life strays into some sort of weird attempt to educate God. To try and fill him in on my situation so that he can act according to my plan. Lord, 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 I, I, I'm, I'm not sure you've really got what's going on in my life. Because if you had got it, Lord, then you would have sorted it out by now. Lord, maybe, maybe you misunderstood what I was telling you. A whole week ago, I told you about this difficult situation that I'm in, and it's still difficult. Lord, do I need to rephrase it? Do I need to explain it again? Do I need to go over my plan for you one more time? Maybe it's just me, but, but I think we, we probably all find ourselves trying to counsel the Lord, trying to enlighten him in some way. But Isaiah says, can you see how stupid that is? Can you see how crazy that is? God is infinitely more wise, infinitely more knowledgeable than you are. And so whatever is going on in your life, however confusing it might be to you, the Lord gets it. He understands it, even if you don't. The Lord is beyond compare in his greatness. He's beyond compare in his wisdom and also in his control. Global politics have been on people's minds a lot over the last few years, haven't they? Whether it's our, our, our kind of global response to climate change or to coronavirus, the repeated message has been that, that we are stronger together than we are apart. That if that if nations could just learn to, to come together, to, to pull their resources, to combine their strength, then 
we would really be unstoppable. But then look at what it says in verse 15. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. God looks at the, the might, the, the, the strength, the power of the nations of the earth, and he says they are like a drop in a bucket to him. In other words, they are, they are inconsequential. That when you think back to the beach again, when you, when you drop a little bit of water out of your bucket on the way back from the sea, you don't run back to try and scoop it back into the bucket. It just doesn't matter. It's so small that you barely notice. And so summits and alliances, empires and regimes, these big displays of human power are like that to the Lord. They're nothing. Verse 17, they are worthless. They're less than nothing to him. They are so small to him, they're barely worth acknowledging. God is incomparably greater than the nations of the earth, says Isaiah. And that means he is in complete control of each one of them. Verse 23, he says, he brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground that he blows on them and they wither and the whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. Sometimes we can be intimidated by human strength, can't we? Whether on the playground, in the office, or on the world stage, we can fear those who seem to have power, those with wealth, those with influence, But God doesn't. God is never intimidated. He is never threatened. He is greater than any government. He is bigger than any bully. The rulers and the regimes of this world are nothing to him. They are no match for the Lord. He blows on them and they wither. And if that is true, if that is true for the nations of the world... Well, then Isaiah says it is also true for the idols of our hearts. Look at verse 18. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol that a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions, it, uh, fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. This is, um, this is one of Isaiah's favorite comparisons to make in his book. It comes up again and again and again. It's the comparison between God and idols. And notice that he doesn't really need to do anything other than just describe the idols to make his point. He says, look, the, the best that, that a poor person can hope from their idol is that it won't go moldy. The, the best that the, the most skilled worker can achieve with all their gold and silver it is an idol that won't just fall over. Compared to the, the living, speaking, creating, rescuing God that he's been describing in this chapter, idols are useless. They're pathetic. They're laughable. And we laugh at them, but but so often our hearts are drawn to them, aren't they? Because the point is that we don't just doubt God's power. What we do is we, 
we put our hope and trust in something else instead. But we're not neutral. As we thought about last week, we, you know, most of us don't actually bow down to blocks of wood. But we do worship things that cannot stand up by themselves, don't we? Just think about it for a minute. Think about how much work, how much effort and time you need to put into to propping up the idol of popularity. How hard that is. Think about how much energy and investment goes into making sure the idol of success or career doesn't just fall over. Do you see... Just like in Isaiah's day, idols take and take and take, and then they let us down. They, they make these big promises. Give to me, and I will give you comfort and, and security and fulfillment and satisfaction. They make these big promises, but they just can't deliver. And so after all of our investment, after all that we pour into them, the best we can hope for is that they don't go rotten. That they don't just topple over. And Isaiah's point in showing us the, the foolishness, the weakness of idols, is so that we see by comparison the strength of God. His point is that only this God is big enough for you to depend on. Only this God is strong enough to provide the, the security and the comfort that we all long for. Is God powerful enough to, to deliver on his promises? Well, I hope you can see the answer in Isaiah 40 is yes. Yes, he absolutely is. Verse 25, he is greater and, and more powerful than anything in all of creation. So you can trust him. You can trust him. But, but knowing God's incomparable power is... It's still not quite enough, is it? It's not quite enough because there's another, another kind of follow-up question that really matters. You see, there's, it's one thing knowing that, that God has all power, that he can do whatever he wants. But, but the question is, does he care enough to give us what we need? That's the question that Israel asks in verse 27. Uh, just look there again, they say, or it says, Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Uh, you might be incomparable in your power, Lord, but, but what about your compassion? What about your care? That was Israel's question, and, and it can be our question too, can't it? We might believe that God is big and powerful, we might know that, that nothing is too difficult for him. That's not our problem. Our problem is we're just not sure he really cares. My way is hidden from the Lord, says Israel. In other words, God, God doesn't see the stuff I've got to deal with tomorrow. He's too big, too mighty to be bothered with my struggles. He's too powerful to pay attention to my life. It's so easy, isn't it, to think like that? But look at what Isaiah says in verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. 
He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding no one can fathom. God is incomparable in his power and his strength. But look at what he does with it. Verse 29, he gives strength to the weary. And he increases the power of the weak. God is the God of unending strength. He is the all-powerful, self-sufficient creator. And he chooses to use all that power for us, to give to us. It's out of God's infinite power that he graciously gives strength to weak and weary people like you and me. It's from his unending strength that he sustains people who can't keep going by themselves. Because we are weak and weary, aren't we? No matter, no matter what our culture tells us, if we're honest with ourselves this evening, we know that we don't actually have what it takes to keep going and to make it through life. We saw this last week. The reality, whether we like it or not, is that we are fragile. Like the flowers of the field, we're vulnerable. We, we are temporary. Well, that, that's true physically, but it's also true spiritually. It is easy for us to grow weary in the Christian life. Denying yourself, as we've been seeing in Mark's Gospel, taking up your cross, following Jesus... It's demanding. It's hard. And so when trials and temptations come, when, when difficulty and despair comes, when, when following Jesus just feels like a slog, we get weary. We wonder whether we can really keep going, whether we can make it to next Sunday. And that feeling comes to all of us, doesn't it? Verse 30 says, even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. Even, even the strongest and most resilient among us grow tired. Even the most energetic and enthusiastic of Christians can stumble and fall. And so you see, the Christian life, it, it requires far, far more than gritted teeth and determination. We need more than some sort of inner strength and resolve to run the race to the end. And wonderfully, Isaiah 40 says that God is both powerful enough and caring enough to provide all that you need. Verse 31, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. It's so counterintuitive, isn't it, this? It's so, so countercultural. The world's constantly telling us to, to look within, to find that inner strength, that, that inner drive. That's the key to success. That's how to make life work. But Isaiah says, no. No. The opposite is true. He says when you, it's when you recognize your weakness, when you, when you accept that you don't have the ability to keep going. And so instead you, you depend, you rely, you hope fully on the Lord. That is when you experience true strength. 
It's when you, it's when you give up trying to be self-sufficient and independent that you can soar rather than stumble through the Christian life. One person who, who got this was the Apostle Paul. In his letter to the Corinthians, he talks about his thorn in the flesh. We're not exactly sure what that is, but we do know that it, it caused him a great deal of pain and difficulty. So much so that, that three times he prayed to the Lord that, that he would remove it, that he would take it from him. But God didn't. He didn't remove it. Instead, he used it to teach Paul about this. He used it to teach Paul about power and weakness. Uh, listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul goes on to say, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardship, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you see, Paul understood Isaiah's message. In fact, more than understanding, Paul saw and experienced the fulfillment of Isaiah's message in the person of Jesus Christ. It was, it was in Christ and through faith in him that Paul experienced God's comfort that we thought about last week. Christ is the good shepherd, the one who comes for his people, the one who rescues and redeems guilty rebels like you and me. It's in Christ that Paul and that we can experience God's comfort. And here it's in Christ that Paul experiences God's power. He says he can boast, he can even delight in his own weakness because he had put his hope in the Lord. He had put his trust in the God of unending strength. And so as he says to the Colossians, that means he can strenuously contend, he can keep going, he can keep running, he can keep fighting in the Christian life. How? With all the energy that Christ so powerfully worked in him. And so as we finish, let me ask you this evening, where, where are you looking for these things? Where are you looking for comfort in life? Where are you seeking to find strength to keep going? Who or what do you run to when, when times are tough? Where do you go when you just feel weary in life. Because Isaiah 40 says, Here is your God. There is no one like him. So come to him. Come to Jesus. And he will give you all the comfort and all the strength that you need. Let's pray together. Father God, what, what an awesome picture this chapter of your word gives us. What an awesome and magnificent God you are. And Father, as we read these words, we 
wonder how or why we would ever turn to anything or anyone else other than you, the incomparable creator of all things and the compassionate God who gives strength to the weary. Father, please help us to behold you. Please help us to come to you in the person of your son, Jesus, and to know the strength and the comfort that that brings. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. We're going to share communion together in a few minutes' time, but we're going to stand together and sing first. So when the band starts, let's stand and sing praise to our God.